Okay. Well, if everybody wants to turn in their Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, we began a study of the book of 1 Timothy a few weeks ago. Last week, we actually spent the majority of our, of our class time in Acts chapter 20. And we went to Acts chapter 20 because there in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is making a special visit to the uh, elders of the church of Ephesus, where he calls the elders of the church of Ephesus there to meet him, and he gives them some instructions. And we took time to look at that uh, discussion and that meeting by the Apostle Paul with the Ephesian elders, because in it was addressed some of the topical issues around church government and church structure. Because as Paul met with the elders of the church of Ephesus, we established the biblical church structure of having a plurality of elders in every church. And we also noted in that same chapter how it uh, attributes three different titles or three different names for the same office of elder. We noticed that the, that very chapter uses the word overseer and elder to speak of the same group of men, the same office in the church. We also noted how the New Testament uses the, the language of pastor for that same office of elder. And so really that was just a bunch of background work uh, for beginning our study of 1 Timothy. This is the church of Ephesus where the Apostle Paul has sent young Timothy to be his apostolic representative in this church. And so we looked at the church polity that's happening there in this church. Um, this church is having some problems. This church is having some uh, several different issues, but primarily it appears from the way this letter begins in 1 Timothy that one of the main problems in this church is doctrinal error, is heresy being taught in this church. So Paul has sent Timothy to this church to address this very uh, serious problem of, of heresy and false teaching that has arose in this church in Ephesus. That's why, that's the occasion for this letter, it seems. So I just thought, what, something that's always been interesting to me, as not only as you read 1 Timothy, but as you read the Corinthian letters, as you read many letters in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews that we're studying in, in, the, in the worship service, it's very interesting to note that even in apostolically planted churches, even in a church such as the church at Ephesus where the Apostle Paul spent more time there, three years, the book of Acts tells us, Paul spent three years with this church, um, feeding this church and pouring himself into it. And even though this church was planted by the Apostle Paul himself, even though this church had a biblical church government, church structure and organization, what do we find happening even in apostolic churches? We find problems, we find false teaching, we find issues arising. And so on one level, it comforts me to know, like when problems happen with our church, that this is nothing strange. This is nothing that's not to be expected. Um, this is actually very, um, very common in the church because we are not glorified people yet. We all sin and um, that sin affects the church. And so those sins have to be addressed. And that's what's happening in First Timothy. That's why this, this book is written um, so even though this was an apostolic church, the same goes for us in that the church is never able to just rest on its laurels, as they say. Meaning you can't just rest in, in past victories and, 
and, and not be, as I say that we are now, the church militant. This side of glory, the church is, has work to do, very serious work. And just as Paul will go on to tell Timothy that we're to, we're to be diligent about watching our lives and watching our doctrine. Because in doing this, we'll not only save ourselves, but those who are under our teaching, you see. So it's, it's never um, looking for that smooth uh, red carpet to fly us into heaven. That's not the picture that we have. We have a, a battle and a struggle that is um, our life now as the church in an unbelieving world. And even inside the church, the fact that we still all sin, we have to be very wary of, of going astray. And so that's what we see going on here. So let's dive in to the actual letter here. Let's get back at it because we're only at verse 3. We're only at verse 3 even though we've been looking here for several weeks now. But let's just note the first and maybe even the primary issue that's going on in this church. And Paul addresses it very quickly beginning in the verse 3. Paul says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, he says, Remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So we'll stop there for a second and just address some of these points that Paul's already stated here. Again, Timothy is being installed in this church as, as really an apostolic representative is the way I like to, to refer to it. And he's being put in this church to oversee the doctrinal health of this church um, for some reason, in some way, this plurality of elders that are supposed to be overseeing the, the apostolic tradition are obviously not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And Paul's heard that the teaching is going astray. The teaching is, is actually, um, it's going astray and getting strange. Strange doctrines are being taught in this church at Ephesus. So um, the question usually comes up at this point, what exactly is the, nat- the, the nature of the Ephesian heresy, right? Because I know we like to classify heresies by, you know, certain historic names of the people who came up with the heresies, and we, we have nice little um, folders to put the different heresies into. But as you look at the, the book of 1 Timothy and even 2 Timothy and even Titus, seems to be similar errors going on in, in, in the church that t- Titus is installed in. Um, it's very hard to pinpoint precisely what the exact name of this heresy is as far as if it was to become fully matured over time, what we would what we'd call or label this heresy. The, the more you look at the different errors that Paul's addressing, this is a very wide-ranging, um, many aspects to this, this, this error. All kinds of different, different errors seem to be all going on in this one church. It's a very wide-ranging scope of of aberrant teaching, but let's look at some of the particular things that Paul mentions about these errors, and we'll, and we'll try to um, put our fingers on what that error could fully develop into as far as heresies that we're familiar with. So the first thing Paul said there in verse 3 was to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Strange doctrines. The word there for 
Well, really, the three words, teach strange doctrines, is just one word in the Greek, heterodidoskalein. Heterodidoskalein, meaning, hetero meaning other, other teaching or other doctrine. So that's what these people are teaching. Their other teachings is what they're bringing. So if Paul's saying these people are teaching other teachings, these teachings are other than what? Other than the truth? Um, yeah, that's what other than the apostolic teachings, which come from where? Where does the apostolic teaching come from? The apostles. The apostles. Where do they get it from? Christ. From Christ himself, right? From the scriptures even? Yeah, all of those are, are true. They're veering away from, from God's revelation and the authorities that God has um, put here on the earth for us to submit to. So they're veering away other teachings Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, because there, Paul uses the exact same word, heterodidoskalein, these other strange doctrines, but here he gives like a, a fuller explanation of, of why that's happening and why it's so um, wrong and what, what's so unhealthy about it. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, it says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, that's that word, heterodidoskalein, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with what? He says, and does not agree with sound words. Sound words. Literally, that, that, that word is a medical term, which means to be healthy. These must be healthy words, theologically healthy words. If they're not giving theologically healthy words, they're, they're, they're not agreeing with the apostles. They're not agreeing with Christ. Because that's what he says. These things do not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're teaching other than what Jesus Christ taught. And it says, there's an and, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. See, so there's almost like two aspects to false teaching or to error or teaching other than. It's either, it, it, there's a couple aspects you need to watch for in any teaching. It must be theologically healthy. It must be according to Christ's teaching. And it must lead to godliness. See, it must, it must produce fruit or, it, or it's not actually in accordance with the teaching of Christ and the apostles. And then we'll just read verse 4 because it goes on to get to the, the, um, the heart of the issue in these false teachers and why they're teaching what they teach. He says in verse 4, the one doing this is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words, out of which arises envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and he goes on. So I, I thought that was interesting to note, um, just really where all of this is coming from in the hearts of these false teachers, but I could say it like this, as, imp as important as words are, in God's revelation, are, are words important? Should we care about words? We should very much care about words. Um, that's why we do exegesis. We, we're very, we care about the words, we care about the syntax, we care about the grammar, we care about all of that, because that's how we know what God's saying. But somehow here, there's obvious, obviously a distinction that Paul's making with, with the theological nitpicking that these teachers are, are attempting to do with the word of God. They're not treating it as you should treat it. They are, they're, they're nitpicking things just for the sake of nitpicking. 
You see, just for the sake of controversy, they, they have a uh, divisive spirit, as we like to call it. Right? They just want to find things to argue about and to cause trouble and cause debate. Right? Not a healthy way. Not, it's not the reason you should be studying the Word of God to find issues and to find quarrels about what's being, being taught. If that's only coming out of a, a selfish desire to start controversy. Um, since we're in the Timothys, turn to 2 Timothy real quick. It shouldn't be much of a turn. 2 Timothy 2, 14. Because I, I think here it gives us almost like a balance of, of the fact that, yes, we need words and we should be very careful with the words of God's revelation. But at the same time, there is a way that you can treat words that's not healthy and not beneficial to the hearer. So um, let's see here. Let's, 2 Timothy 2, 14. Paul's going to tell Timothy later a similar thing. He says, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. See, this, this unhelpful debate and quarreling amongst words, there's obviously some aspect of that that's not helpful and not fruitful and is just a reason to argue and debate. Right? So you could read that and maybe think, well, okay, we shouldn't, let's not, let's not get into, you know, the fact that justification is by faith. You know, it's just a word. It's not that big a deal. It's just, that's not what he's saying. Because read the next verse. Very interesting that he puts these two thoughts together. Verse 15 says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. See? So both are necessary. There is to be a very accurate handling of the word of God, but it's not to be a, a for the, it's not to be that for the sake of controversy and for the sake of debate. That's not helping anybody. That actually ruins the hearers. That probably discourages people from even wanting to study the Bible if all you're doing is presenting endless controversy and debate. See, it must be edifying. Your your teaching and your Bible study must be edifying, or you're not being edified. And if you teach those you're teaching to are not being edified. See, so Paul is addressing the error of these false teachers and their desire just to, to use the Bible for divisive and controversial issues. That's not what we're given the Bible for. That's not what it's for. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 then, and we'll look at some other aspects of this false teaching. In verse 4 now, Paul says to Timothy, um, as you correct these men who are teaching this, he says, Instruct them not to pay attention to myths. Don't pay attention to myths. Obviously, somehow these, these teachers were, were purporting um, these, these myths. They were propagating these myths that they had come up with as revelation from God, as biblical truth. They were pushing these teachings as, ver- as, as truth. And in this word myth, uh, many people here... Are, are the commentators are, are thinking there's hints at an early form of Gnosticism forming, right? These, these myths, these other truths, right, that can be found even in the scriptures that um, the Gnostics would teach are these hidden truths that are, that are only there for the spiritually elite and only some could obtain to them from the scriptures. But that's not everything we have in the Revelation is, is so that we can teach it all. There's nothing that we're hiding from anybody. We're not like the, what is it, like the, what's the Tom Cruise, you know, like, there's nothing, science, there's nothing, you know, like these secret levels where you gain more and more knowledge, you know, become more and more uh, given over to truth. No, we, 
we're teaching everybody on the streets as much as we can, much less hiding something from spiritually elite people. Now, the word of God is to be taught openly and freely to everyone. There's nothing that we're hiding. We're an open book to the world in that sense. See, so these myths that they're teaching, um, some people have seen as being early Gnosticism. If you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, um, the last thing Paul says there is another reason people are uh, suspecting in some early forms of Gnosticism here at, at work. Verse 20, 1 Timothy, Timothy 6.20 uh, says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. And the NASB puts that word knowledge in quotation marks. Um, as if there was given a name to this teaching. Knowledge, the word gnosis, right? Which is where Gnosticism comes from. This secret knowledge, this special secret knowledge that you can gain. And if you gain that, you are almost on another level of, of spiritual and Christianity um, in that sense. But So that, that's another reason people suspect um, this false teaching to have aspects of Gnosticism in it. What else, what else does Paul mention here? He mentions myths. He also describes the error as including endless genealogies. Endless genealogies, it says. That's, that's kind of interesting. But in this, all the commentaries agree that this sort of error of, of getting into endless genealogies, they all agree that this is of a, of a Jewish um, character to get into the sort of thing of, of getting into endless genealogies. A couple of, of the commentaries um, gave an example from the, the Talmud, the Jewish writings, um, specifically the part of the Talmud called the Haggadah. And in the Haggadah, there's a, it's called the Book of Jubilees, which in the Book of Jubilees, you, you can read that. There's, there's English translation of it available. It, it's not worth reading, but what they're doing in the Book of Jubilees, it's a very fanciful book where, well, if you, if you know what the, the year of Jubilee is, it's the, at seven sevens, right? At, the 49th year begins the special celebration, the year of Jubilee. But So what they're doing with the number seven is some of these Jews have taken the number seven and they've started back at creation and gone all the way through to the entrance of Canaan and they're using the number seven to, um, to designate years at times at which all the events happen throughout the Old Testament scriptures with the patriarchs. Like they're giving dates and they all correspond in seven in seven you know, unit periods and stuff like this, but it's all find a, find a pattern. finding, but they're making, they're not even finding, pattern, they're making up patterns. They're attributing these dating systems to all the events, even though there's no history of what day this happened or what date that happened biblically. They're just forming this, this genealogical pattern totally arbitrarily, not inspired by God. And that's the error. They just seem to have a, an affinity for that kind of um, myth and that kind of just, um, arbitrary, arbitrary work in the scriptures. So everybody's saying that's of a Jewish nature to do that kind of thing. And, and there are examples existing actually um, of the Jews doing that. But I think there is even more clearly articulated and uh, prominent Jewish influence in this error because if you look at verses 6 and 7, it gets pretty explicit that the errors uh, is, is coming from a, a Judaistic background. Because in verse 6 it says, For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, 
See? Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So when he says that these people are wanting to be teachers of the law, obviously there he's referring to Old Covenant law, Mosaic law, because he's about to go, go on and quote from the Ten Commandments in the same context. So these men are actually using the law of God. They're actually using the scriptures to promote these myths and genealogies. That's, that's actually what they're, what they're using. So what's the big deal? What's the big problem? What, what's so significant then about these men going a little too overboard in what they're seeing in the Old Testament? They're making a little, little too far stretches with the genealogies and some of these things that Paul's calling a myth. What, what's the end result of these errors? Um, what's the big deal about moving away from careful exegesis? Well, notice the language that Paul uses of the end result of, the, of this falsehood, because in verse 4, he says, these kind of things give rise to mere speculations. Mere speculations, the way he's... In verse 6, he says, these men are turning aside to fruitless discussions. Fruitless discussions, you see. So, to, to, to be talking about mere speculations and, and fruitless discussions just means there's no end to the teaching. There's no... Um, tell us. There's no point to what these people are doing. It's just endless talk. It's just endless uh, discussions with no real fruit. But Paul here tells us what the, what the end of teaching, what the telos of teaching should be. What's the end of and the purpose of, of biblical teaching? It's not just talking. It's not just endless talking. Notice what he says there as he goes on from verse 3. Well, he tells them, remain on at Ephesus in verse 3, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than what? Rather than the furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. See, there's to, there's to be an end of Bible teaching, and it's to further the administration of God. It's to further the work, the, the stewardship of God. It's to have fruit. It's to bear fruit. That's what it's for. It's, it's to bear fruit personally in the lives of those who are hearing the teaching. And it's to bear fruit as the kingdom of God is expanded through the teaching of, of the Bible and through gospel preaching. You see, if faith leading to works is not being produced by the teaching, um, it's not actually profitable for the people. It doesn't go anywhere. It's just fruitless discussion. It's just endless talk. Um, and it's not serving its God-intended purpose. See, any questions about that? You see how just talking about the Bible in one sense isn't enough? Right? Just talking about the Bible, isn't it? It, it, it needs to be leading to something in the, in the people's heart. Um, notice how Paul goes on in verse 5 now to further describe what he wants the end goal to be of his teaching. This is a big, I like this verse. Um, if I emailed you, this has been at, my, at the bottom of my email, right at the name, because I want this to be the end of my teaching as well. This is what the end of apostolic teaching is to be. He says in verse 5, but the goal of our instruction is love. See that? The goal of his teaching, what he wants to come out of his teaching as he's teaching people, he wants love to be springing up in these people's hearts. That's the goal 
of the teaching. So it's not fruitless discussion. It's, it's bearing fruit. The fruit is love. What does he go on to say? Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So as that's Paul's desire, of course, Paul, what Paul's not saying as he mentions the word love, he's not just saying this, this feeling, man, I just hope these people get a good feeling when I teach. It's not just an emotional response. That's not what he's looking for. Um, only, maybe I'm sure he wants that too, um, but biblical love is something that's performed. Biblical love is a verb. It's something that's, that's done. It's an action that's based on biblical truth. Um, we just looked recently, right, at Romans chapter 13. I preached a sermon from Romans chapter 13. We're there. We saw that love is certainly to be lived out because love is what fulfills the law, right? If you truly love, you're going to be doing what God commands. You're going to love God in all the ways that he says to love him, and you're going to love man in all the way that God says to love your fellow man. That's what the Apostle Paul wants to come out of his teaching, a love for God and a love for man. Sweetly, that's, that's, that's a biblical love. That's a love that's going to be received by God. That's going to be that soothing aroma to God as his people serve him and love him and love each other. And obviously, Paul's saying that's only going to come, he says, a love performed from a pure heart. A pure heart. How do you have a pure heart? Well, you your heart needs to be washed by the gospel first and foremost. It needs to be pure, by the, by cleansed by the preaching of the gospel. He says, this love needs to be from a, a good conscience, or we might call it like a clear conscience, right? A clear conscience that's, again, been cleansed by the gospel. And he says, in a sincere faith. That's what he wants, a sincere faith, which is obviously not what these false teachers had because Paul is seeing right into their motives of why they're teaching what they're teaching and why they're doing what they're doing. It's not from a sincere faith. They're not genuinely presenting the word of God for the edification of the people. It's all for them. It's all for their gain, as, as we see here. So um, all of these descriptions that Paul is giving um, for the motives um, of what he wants his ministry to be are, are exactly what's missing <coughs> behind the motives for these false teachers in, in Timothy's church. And it's interesting the way Paul uh, describes the primary motive here for these false teachers, at least here in this verse. What's the primary desire for why they want to be teachers in the church and why they're teaching what they're teaching? Look back at verse 6. Paul said, from, For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, Wanting to be teachers of the law. That's kind of how it, what he says about them. They want to be teachers. Why are they teachers? Well, they just want to be teachers, see? They want to stand in front. They want to be heard. They want people to listen to them and respect them. They like to hear themselves speak, in other words, see? But that's not a, just a desire to want to be the teacher of the law. is not in and of itself righteous and enough. Just wanting to be heard. Um, can, can, I, I was going to say that... Uh, even Jesus Christ, you know, kind of made mention to even the Pharisees mm. desiring that place, you know, in, in, at the feast, you know, that, that honorable seed and, and being seen of praying in public and stuff, you know. Can I read it? Because that's the verse I had. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Matthew 23, verses 5 through 7. That's exactly what came to my mind as well. Um, Jesus condemns the Pharisees of his time as well, which these guys aren't at least far as time-wise, far behind um, Jesus' day. Um, this is exactly the same thing that Jesus saw in the hearts 
of those false teachers of his days. Matthew 23, verses 5 through 7. It says, But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries, and they lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. And they love respectful greetings in the marketplaces. And they loved being called rabbi by men. You see? That's, um, that's not a pure heart. That's not a pure reason to desire to be a teacher just for all the benefits that come from being a teacher. That, that's, that's not a, a praiseworthy reason to desire to be a teacher. And there's that great danger of desiring the praise of men. That's, I see that all over the place even now. You know, men just love the, the praises of other men. You see whole ministries being built up because they just love large, they want a large church of many people just hearing about them. Their teaching is about them. It's not even biblical. It's just, they're just preaching about themselves a lot of the time. So it really seems to come out. Yes, sir. Yeah, and I think they, they also don't really have love for the church. It's basically the power, the prestige, and all that. And then you, you look at people today <coughs> doing that, you know, we can name off some names. But, you know, like it says in James 3, 1, let not many of you become teachers, my brother, knowing that you shall receive a stricter judgment. It's a serious thing mm. to be, uh, you know, shepherding a congregation and teaching false doctrine. Mm. Do you think that those guys were, were they saved? Were they brothers? Were they false? Well, Timothy's there to rebuke them. So, Lord willing, some of them repented, right, and would show themselves to be fearing God. And some of them um, are named that didn't. Verse 20 says, among some of these men are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who obviously didn't repent. And Paul says he had to hand them over to Satan and put them out of the church. So some of them probably repented when Timothy showed up, I'm sure. But some of them obviously held their ground and rebelled and Paul ended up having to put them out of the church, unfortunately. So, yeah, time only tells. You know, we all sin. What's going to reveal the genuineness is whether you repent or not. You know, that's only time will tell sometimes. So, yeah, that's, that's the same thing with these guys here. Um, yeah, Paul, if you remember back, we read the background information back in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20. Paul warned uh, the elders there in Ephesus. He said, beware these guys are going to come, these guys are going to draw, want to draw away disciples after themselves. That's their motivation. These false teachers are going to rise up in the church just to draw people away to themselves and to follow them. See, so Paul knew it was going to happen. That's what's kind of amazing about the whole situation is Paul had called the shot along 10 years prior. He knew that this was going to happen. And the more I think about it, I wonder, um, as I think about Paul saying that to the Ephesian elders, I'm wondering... If he's being very specific as like, I know these guys, you know, are going to do this in your church. Or if he's just saying, this is the way church is. I know this is going to happen in your church because this is what happens in churches. Men want to rise up and draw people away after themselves. So be ready. Because, I mean, it's common. It's very common. Um, unfortunately. Uh, so what else can we see here? I, I try to think of, uh, what would be some application for us as far as the doctrine of the church is concerned? Because this is a real reality, it happened then. If it can happen in an apostolic church, if it can happen in a church that Paul planted, it can certainly happen here. 
Um, certainly, we're not any better than they are. So what would be an, a, a practical application for this? Being that, how, how do we protect the church from the, this reality that there's false motives behind those desiring to be teachers? What are, what are we to do? Because as I think about this, and, and, what, and what the error really is, is the motives. These people have false motives, but isn't it almost impossible to judge motive? How can you know somebody's heart? How can you know somebody's motive? How do you know if somebody's doing these things for um, ungodly reasons? Well, what Paul is actually writing to Timothy here in this book is, is really a book of helpful guidelines into how, just how to protect the church from exactly this kind of thing. I mean, that's what we're going to see in, uh, for instance, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, which we will eventually go through this whole, this whole list of requirements for the teachers of the church, specifically overseers. <coughs> but here the Apostle Paul is laying out for them, laying out for Timothy on um, these guidelines that, that he can, it's really just tests of fruit ways that he can test the fruit of men who desire to be teachers in the church. And that's what must happen because the first, what is it, verse 10. Here he's speaking about deacons, but look, he says about deacons, these men must first also be tested, then let them serve. And if there's a test like that for deacons, even though it's not mentioned for overseers, obviously the overseers are to be tested as well, see? So... Um, there is to be a testing ground. There is to be a time when you're, when you're trying to discern, is this brother's motives pure in his desire to teach, right? That's, that's good and that's right. Um, what's to be the, the basis for this testing? Well, everything that verse, uh, chapter 3 has. Look, look how chapter 3 starts off. He says it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work that he desires to do. And then he says in verse 2, an overseer, then, an overseer then must, and he just begins a whole litany of requirements there. And so Paul's providing Timothy, look, make sure these guys meet all of these requirements. And in that way, you can safeguard the church of God from, from accidentally raising somebody up who's actually has false motives and actually isn't going to benefit the church, is actually going to try to draw people away and, and, and be divisive and, and hurt the church. So that's what Paul's writing about. Um, look in verse 6. In verse 6, just one of the requirements, we will eventually look at them all, but he says that this person must not be a new convert. He says, don't raise up a new convert. Why? so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil, which is, I think, obviously a reference to the sin of pride. You raise up a new believer, all of a sudden he's teaching over people and has this authority, and the, the natural inclination of simple man's heart is to get puffed up. Well, look at me. Wow. Six months, and I'm already an elder. I'm the man. And now, next thing you know, his head is big, and he's sinning all over the place because of this false desire that's in false motive that's built up in his heart um, that Paul tells Timothy watch out for that be careful about that in the same sense along the same lines if you turn to 1st Timothy chapter 5 verse 22 Paul kind of says it a different way in 1st Timothy chapter 5 verse 22 Paul says do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily what does it mean to lay hands upon somebody what is what does that mean? Yes, sir. 
commissioning somebody with uh, church leadership in an elder's position. Commissioning them, like what, what do we call it? Um, ordaining somebody, right? Yeah, don't ordain anyone um, to the eldership. Don't ordain anyone even to the, to the role of deacon. Don't ordain anybody as a mission. Don't do any of that too hastily, right? Be very careful about that, of ordaining somebody to a, a, a place of authority in the church of God. Why? He actually says why. Because if you do that, he says you will thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. So that brings it home. <laughs> that, that certainly brings it home that if we are to do that and... And look, like we've already established, this was an apostolically uh, set up and organized church. These people, these, and, and most people assume that these false teachers did have elder status in the church in Ephesus, and they're going astray. And Paul may have established these men himself. See, but, so this isn't like a foolproof plan, right? But you follow the principles that God has provided, and he'll honor that, but it doesn't mean that that error still couldn't happen, right? I mean, so, yes, sir. I have some buddies back uh, in Florida, and they've shared with me, and, and they're in elder positions, that they laid hands a little quicker, quicker than they should have, hmm. and uh, everything seemed right, and it, it, it seemed like a mature brother. They laid hands a little quicker than they should have. Now they're regretting it, and they're trying to figure out what to do and how to handle it, because he handles the flock very poorly and it's been a detriment to their church because of it. Mm -hmm. So the way practically it played out, it's, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, like you say, everything seemed right. You know, so in one sense, I mean, if they, if he fulfilled all of the requirements of, you know, as much as they could tell, I mean, that's sad to hear, you know, but we can only do what you can do and, you know, there's obviously a balance in that. Right? We're not going to say, okay, we have a 30-year testing period, right? You've got to prove to us beyond a shadow of doubt. That's not obviously what Paul's saying either. But you do see, um, you notice, what do we reference? Like Acts chapter 14, where I reference that because it's where it says that Paul established elders in all of the churches. Well, Paul had already made one route around, right? Years later, he comes back and establishes elders in all the churches. So he wasn't just like, okay, preaching the gospel in the city. Okay, out of you guys who just got converted, let me establish some eldership. That's not what he was doing. You know, it was actually years of, of time in between people being converted and being raised up to eldership. So um, for you guys, just so you all know, and anybody who's, well, obviously all of you who are members should have gone through membership class, but we do try to remember to um, let you know that we do keep this in mind and we... As elders of our church, it is our responsibility to watch over the church in that sense and let you know and, and remind you that we are not going to put anybody over you who we don't believe biblically should be. And, and we're aware of our responsibility in that. We like to remind you guys, you come into membership, that, that we're mindful of that. So um, just to put you at ease that certainly nobody is going to be put in an elder that we're not confident fulfills the call of God to be an elder but we also protect things as, as like the pulpit, right? We don't have people come and preach here who we aren't sure has, has been proven faithful um, in, in their lives and their doctrine. See, we're careful about that as well to protect the church from, from just any, any false teaching that could come from that, you know, accidentally or incidentally. But um, we protect the pulpit. We protect even the Sunday school, right? We limit 
teaching in Sunday school. Yes, sir. Does that also apply to children's ministry? I mean, that's the leadership. It can. I think. I think there's there's levels to this protection because we do want to. We also have to give opportunity for the brethren to exercise their gifts, right? Just because you're not an elder doesn't mean you can't teach. It doesn't mean you can't teach from the pulpit, even. And so we, there's different avenues that we like to open up to people, like small groups, right? That's a very good testing ground to test somebody's faithfulness to the word and their ability to teach and how the church receives their teaching and is, and is edified, all of that. That's, that's what all of that is for. So I, I definitely think we have a, almost a, an elevated, you know, a level of protection as the authority of the teaching goes up, right? Um, Preaching on a Sunday morning is obviously a very authoritative, from our church's perspective, um, that's an authoritative teaching we like to reserve for the elders. It's not, well, we've had people who aren't actually um, elder um, in our church preach from the pulpit, and that's, that's okay, but we do guard that. We're very careful about that, and especially the office of elder as well. But I'll tell you right now, I mean, Emilio could, would... would confer with me that our desire is to raise up elders. It's part of our responsibility. Paul will tell Timothy, you, you, you are to raise up men who will likewise share the faith that I've given you. That's part of our job is to raise men up. So as much as we're careful about doing it, it is our desire to do it. So that's, that's definitely, definitely there. We could use the help. We could use the help because there is much work to be done and our church is growing. Our church is growing. We have new members we're presenting today. Guests are coming in. Uh, there's much work to be done, so um, we're looking for a few good men. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's all, that's all the Lord's work. You could be a very good man and not called to the office of elder, yeah. right? You, as we'll see in 1 Timothy 3, there's specific things that God would give to a man who he wants to be in that role. You could be the most godly man in this church and not be an elder. That doesn't mean that you're not godly, but there is qualifications that we will look at. So um, we're out of time. Let's pray and we'll go to service. Well, Father, Father, it has been our pleasure to study your word today and to look into your revelation. And we thank you, God, for giving us words, God. We thank you that we have words to study, objective truth that we can base our lives on, that we can base our, our very faith on, our very salvations on, the words that are contained in the gospel of Jesus. And we pray that we would be given discernment um, as we study your words, that we would not cross over the line into fruitless discussion or to um, things as, as, as old wives tells, as, as Paul tells Timothy, these things are called, and, and just endless and fruitless discussions, Lord. And and guard our hearts from handling your word out of, out of uh, conceited and prideful motivations, Lord, just to stir up controversy, Lord. There's, there's much error in this world, Lord, as you know more than any. And there's many things to confront, Lord, but guard our hearts, Lord, and guard our, our minds and guard our tongues from, from error, Lord, so that we would glorify you in everything we do in thought, word, and deed. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.